Human Nature and Conduct by John Dewey. Part 3, Section 6, The Nature of Aims. Addressing a Theory of Final Ends, Aims as Directive Means, Ends as Justifying Means, Meaning Well as an Aim, Wishes and Aims. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by William Jones. Our problem now concerns the nature of ends, that is, ends in view, or aims. The essential elements in the problem have already been stated. It has been pointed out that the ends, or objectives, of conduct are those foreseen consequences which influence present deliberation, and which finally bring it to rest by furnishing an adequate stimulus to overt action. Consequently, ends arise and function within action. They are not, as current theories too often imply, things lying beyond activity at which the latter is directed. They are not, strictly speaking, ends or termini of action at all. They are terminals of deliberation, and so turning points in activity. Many opposed moral theories agree, however, in placing ends beyond action, although they differ in their notions of what the ends are. The utilitarian sets up pleasure as such an outside end beyond, as something necessary to induce action, and in which it terminates. Many harsh critics of utilitarianism have, however, agreed that there is some end in which action terminates, a final goal. They have denied that pleasure is such an outside aim, and put perfection or self-realization in its place. The entire popular notion of ideals is infected with this conception of some fixed end beyond activity at which we should aim. According to this view, ends in themselves come before aims. We have a moral aim only as our purpose coincides with some end in itself. We ought to aim at the latter, whether we actually do or not. When men believed that fixed ends existed for all normal changes in nature, the conception of similar ends for men was but a special case of a general belief. If the changes in a tree from acorn to full-grown oak were regulated by an end, which was somehow imminent or potential in all the less perfect forms, and if change was simply the effort to realize a perfect or complete form, then the acceptance of a like view for human conduct was consonant with the rest of what passed for science. Such a view consistent and systematic, was foisted by Aristotle upon Western culture and endured for two thousand years. When the notion was expelled from natural science by the intellectual revolution of the seventeenth century, logically it should also have disappeared from the theory of human action. But man is not logical, and his intellectual history is a record of mental reserves and compromises. 
he hangs on to what he can in his old beliefs even when he is compelled to surrender their logical basis so the doctrine of fixed ends in themselves at which human acts are or should be directed and by which they are regulated if they are regulated at all persisted in morals and was made the cornerstone of orthodox moral theory the immediate effect was to dislocate moral from natural science to divide man's world as it never had been divided in prior culture one point of view one method and spirit animated inquiry into natural occurrences a radically opposite set of ideas prevailed about men's affairs completion of the scientific change begun in the seventeenth century thus depends upon a revision of the current notion of ends of action as fixed limits and conclusions in fact ends are ends in view or aims they arise out of natural effects or consequences which in the beginning are hit upon or stumbled upon so far as any purpose is concerned men like some of the consequences and dislike others henceforth or till attraction and repulsion alter attaining or averting similar consequences are aims or ends these consequences constitute the meaning and value of an activity as it comes under deliberation meantime of course imagination is busy old consequences are enhanced recombined and modified in imagination invention operates actual consequences that is effects which have happened in the past become possible future consequences of acts still to be performed this operation of imaginative thought complicates the relation of ends to activity but it does not alter the substantial fact ends are foreseen consequences which arise in the course of activity and which are employed to give activity added meaning and to direct its further course they are in no sense ends of action in being ends of deliberation they are redirecting pivots in action men shoot and throw at first this is done as an instinctive or natural reaction to some situation the result when it is observed gives a new meaning to the activity henceforth men in throwing and shooting think of it in terms of its outcome they act intelligently or have an end liking the activity in its acquired meaning they not only take aim when they throw instead of throwing at random but they find or make targets at which to aim this is the origin and nature of goals of action they are ways of defining and deepening the meaning of activity having an end or aim is thus a characteristic of present activity it is the means by which an activity becomes adapted when otherwise it would be blind and disorderly or by which it gets meaning when otherwise it would be mechanical in a strict sense an end in view is a means in present action 
present action is not a means to a remote end. Men do not shoot because targets exist, but they set up targets in order that throwing and shooting may be more effective and significant. A mariner does not sail toward the stars, but by noting the stars he is aided in conducting his present activity of sailing. A port or harbor is his objective, but only in the sense of reaching it, not of taking possession of it. The harbor stands in his thought as a significant point at which his activity will need redirection. Activity will not cease when the port is attained, but merely the present direction of activity. The port is as truly the beginning of another mode of activity as it is the termination of the present one. The only reason we ignore this fact is because it is empirically taken for granted. We know, without thinking, that our ends are perforce beginnings. But theories of ends and ideals have converted a theoretical ignoring, which is equivalent to practical acknowledgment, into an intellectual denial, and have thereby confused and perverted the nature of ends. Even the most important among all the consequences of an act is not necessarily its aim. Results which are objectively most important may not even be thought of at all. Ordinarily, a man does not think in connection with exercise of his profession that it will sustain him and his family in existence. The end thought of is uniquely important, but it is indispensable to state the respect in which it is important. It gives the decisive clue to the act to be performed under the existing circumstances. It is that particular foreseen object that will stimulate the act which relieves existing troubles and straightens out existing entanglements. In a temporary annoyance, even if only that caused by the singing of a mosquito, the thought of that which gives relief may engross the mind in spite of consequences much more important objectively speaking. Moralists have deplored such facts as evidence of levity. But the remedy, if a remedy be needed, is not found in insisting upon the importance of ends in general. It is found in a change of the dispositions which make things either immediately troublesome or tolerable or agreeable. When ends are regarded as literally ends to action, rather than as directive stimuli to present choice, they are frozen and isolated. It makes no difference whether the end is a natural good, like health, or a moral good, like honesty. Set up as complete and exclusive, as demanding and justifying action, as a means to itself, it leads to narrowness. In extreme cases, fanaticism, inconsiderateness, arrogance, and hypocrisy. Joshua's reputed success in getting the son to stand still to serve his desire is recognized to have involved a miracle. But moral theorists 
constantly assume that the continuous course of events can be arrested at the point of a particular object, that men can plunge with their own desires into the unceasing flow of changes and seize upon some object as their end, irrespective of everything else. The use of intelligence to discover the object that will best operate as a releasing and unifying stimulus in the existing situation is discounted. One reminds oneself that one's end is justice or charity or professional achievement or putting over a deal for a needed public improvement, and further questionings and qualms are stilled. It is customary to suppose that such methods merely ignore the question of the morality of the means which are used to secure the end desired. Common sense revolts against the maxim conveniently laid off upon Jesuits or other faraway people that the end justifies the means. There is no incorrectness in saying that the question of means employed is overlooked in such cases, but analysis would go further if it were also pointed out that overlooking means is only a device for failing to note those ends or consequences which, if they were noted, would be seen to be so evil that action would be stopped. Certainly nothing can justify or condemn means except ends, results. But we have to include consequences impartially. Even admitting that lying will save a man's soul, whatever that may mean, it would still be true that lying will have other consequences, namely the usual consequences that follow from tampering with good faith and that lead lying to be condemned. It is willful folly to fasten upon some single end or consequence which is liked and permit the view of that to blot from perception all other undesired and undesirable consequences. It is like supposing that when a finger held close to the eye covers up a distant mountain, the finger is really larger than the mountain. Not the end, in singular, justifies the means, for there is no such thing as the single all-important end. To suppose that there is such an end is like working over again, in behalf of our private wishes, the miracle of Joshua in arresting the course of nature. It is not possible adequately to characterize the presumption, the falsity, and the deliberate perversion of intelligence involved in refusal to note the plural effects that flow from any act. A refusal adopted in order that we may justify an act by picking out the one consequence which will enable us to do what we wish to do and for which we feel the need of justification. Yet this assumption is continually made. It is made by implication in the current view of purposes, or ends in view, as object in themselves, instead of means to unification and liberation of present, conflicting, confused habits and impulses. There is something almost sinister in the desire to label the doctrine that the end justifies the means with the name of some one obnoxious school. Politicians 
especially if they have to do with the foreign affairs of a nation and are called statesmen, almost uniformly act upon the doctrine that the welfare of their own country justifies any measure irrespective of all the demoralization it works. Captains of industry, great executives in all lines, usually work upon this plan but they are not the original offenders by any means. Every man works upon it so far as he permits himself to become so absorbed in one aspect of what he is doing that he loses a view of its varied consequences, hypnotizing his attention by consideration of just those consequences which in the abstract are desirable and slurring over other consequences equally real. Every man works on this principle who becomes over-interested in any cause or project, and who uses its desirability in the abstract to justify himself in employing any means that will assist him in arriving, ignoring all the collateral ends of his behavior. It is frequently pointed out that there is a type of executive man whose conduct seems to be as non-moral as the actions of the forces of nature. We all tend to relapse into this non-moral condition whenever we want any one thing intensely. In general, the identification of the end, prominent in conscious desire and effort, with the end is part of the technique of avoiding a reasonable survey of consequences. The survey is avoided because of a subconscious recognition that it would reveal desire in its true worth, and thus preclude action to satisfy it, or at all events give us an uneasy conscience in striving to realize it. Thus the doctrine of the isolated, complete, or fixed end limits intelligent examination, encourages insincerity, and puts a pseudo-stamp of moral justification upon success at any price. Moralistic persons are given to escaping this evil by falling into another pit. They deny that consequences have anything at all to do with the morality of acts. Not ends, but motives, they say, justify or condemn acts. The thing to do, accordingly, is to cultivate certain motives or dispositions, benevolence, purity, love of perfection, and loyalty. The denial of consequences thus turns out formal, verbal. In reality, a consequence is set up at which to aim, only it is a subjective consequence. Meaning well is selected as the consequence or end to be cultivated at all hazards, an end which is all-justifying, and to which everything else is offered up in sacrifice. The result is a sentimental, futile complacency rather than the brutal efficiency of the executive. But the root of both evils is the same. One man selects some external consequence, the other man a state of internal feeling, to serve as the end. The doctrine of meaning well, as the end, is if anything the more contemptible of the two, 
for it shrinks from accepting any responsibility for actual results. It is negative, self-protective, and sloppy. It lends itself to complete self-deception. Why have men become so attached to fixed external ends? Why is it not universally recognized that an end is a device of intelligence in guiding action, and instrumental to freeing and harmonizing troubled and divided tendencies? The answer is virtually contained in what was earlier said about rigid habits and their effect upon intelligence. Ends are, in fact, literally endless, forever coming into existence, as new activities occasion new consequences. Endless ends is a way of saying that there are no ends, that is, no fixed, self-enclosed finalities. While, however, we cannot actually prevent change from occurring, we can and do regard it as evil. We strive to retain action in ditches already dug. We regard novelties as dangerous, experiments as illicit, and deviations as forbidden. Fixed and separate ends reflect a projection of our own fixed and non-interacting compartmental habits. We see only consequences which correspond to our habitual courses. As we have said, Men do not begin to shoot because there were ready-made targets to aim at. They made things into targets by shooting at them, and then made special targets to make shooting more significantly interesting. But if generation after generation were shown targets they had had no part in constructing, if bows and arrows were thrust into their hands, and pressure were brought to bear upon them to keep them shooting in season and out, some wearied soul would soon propound to willing listeners the theory that shooting was unnatural, that man was naturally wholly at rest, and the targets existed in order that men might be forced to be active, that the duty of shooting and the virtue of hitting are externally imposed and fostered, and that otherwise there would be no such thing as a shooting activity, that is, morality. The doctrine of fixed ends not only diverts attention from examination of consequences and the intelligent creation of purpose, but, since means and ends are two ways of regarding the same actuality, it also renders men careless in their inspection of existing conditions. An aim not framed on the basis of a survey of those present conditions which are to be employed as means of its realization, simply throws us back upon past habits. We then do not do what we intended to do, but what we have got used to doing, or else we thrash about in a blind, ineffectual way. The result is failure. Discouragement follows, assuaged perhaps by the thought that in any case the end is too ideal too noble and remote, to be capable of realization. We fall back on the consoling thought that our moral ideals are too good for this world, and that we must accustom ourselves to a gap between aim and execution. Actual life is then thought of as compromise with the best, and enforced second or third best, 
a dreary exile from our true home in the ideal, or a temporary period of troubled probation to be followed by a period of unending attainment and peace. At the same time, as has been repeatedly pointed out, persons of a more practical turn of mind accept the world as it is, that is, as past customs have made it to be, and consider what advantages for themselves may be extracted from it. They form aims on the basis of existing habits of life, which may be turned to their own private account. They employ intelligence in framing ends and selecting and arranging means. But intelligence is confined to manipulation. It does not extend to construction. It is the intelligence of the politician, administrator, and professional executive, the kind of intelligence which has given a bad meaning to a word that ought to have a fine meaning, opportunism. For the highest task of intelligence is to grasp and realize genuine opportunity or possibility. Roughly speaking, the course of forming aims is as follows. The beginning is with a wish, an emotional reaction against the present state of things, and a hope for something different. Action fails to connect satisfactorily with surrounding conditions. Thrown back upon itself, it projects itself in an imagination of a scene which, if it were present, would afford satisfaction. This picture is often called an aim, more often an ideal, but in itself it is a fancy which may be only a fantasy, a dream, a castle in the air. In itself it is a romantic embellishment of the present. At its best it is material for poetry or the novel. Its natural home is not in the future, but in the dim past or in some distant and supposedly better part of the present world. Every such ideal object is suggested by something actually experienced, as the flight of birds suggests the liberation of human beings from the restrictions of slow locomotion on dull earth. It becomes an aim or end only when it is worked out in terms of concrete conditions available for its realization, that is, in terms of means. This transformation depends upon study of the conditions which generate or make possible the fact observed to exist already. The fancy of the delight of moving at will through the air became an actuality only after men carefully studied the way in which a bird, although heavier than air, actually sustains itself in air. A fancy becomes an aim, in short, when some past sequence of known cause and effect is projected into the future, and when, by assembling its causal conditions, we strive to generate a like result. We have to fall back upon what has already happened naturally without design, and study it to see how it happened, which is what is meant by causation. This knowledge, joined to wish, creates a purpose. Many men have doubtless dreamed of ability to have light in darkness without the trouble of oil, lamps, and friction. Glow-worms, lightning, 
the sparks of cut electric conductors suggest such a possibility but the picture remained a dream until an edison studied all that could be found out about such causal phenomena of light and then set to work to search out and gather together the means for reproducing their operation the great trouble with what passes for moral ends and ideals is that they do not get beyond the stage of fancy of something agreeable and desirable based upon an emotional wish very often at that not even an original wish but the wish of some leader which has been conventionalized and transmitted through channels of authority every gain in natural science makes possible new aims that is the discovery of how things do occur makes it possible to conceive of their happening at will and gives us a start on selecting and combining the conditions the means to command their happening in technical matters this lesson has been fairly well learned but in moral matters men still largely neglect the need of studying the way in which results similar to those which we desire actually happen mechanism is despised as of importance only in low material things the consequent divorce of moral ends from scientific study of natural events renders the former impotent wishes compensatory dreams in consciousness in fact ends or consequences are still determined by fixed habit and the force of circumstance the evils of idle dreaming and of routine are experienced in conjunction idealism must indeed come first the imagination of some better state generated by desire but unless ideals are to be dreams and idealism a synonym for romanticism and fantasy building there must be a most realistic study of actual conditions and of the mode or law of natural events in order to give the imagined or ideal object definite form and solid substance to give it in short practicality and constitute it a working end the acceptance of fixed ends in themselves is an aspect of men's devotion to an ideal of certainty this affection was inevitably cherished as long as men believed that the highest things in physical nature are at rest and that science is possible only by grasping immutable forms and species in other words for much the greater part of the intellectual history of mankind only reckless skeptics would have dared entertain any idea of ends except as fixed in themselves as long as the whole structure of science was erected on the immobile behind however the conception of fixity whether in science or morals lay adherence to a certainty of truth a clinging to something fixed born of fear of the new or attachment to possessions when the classicist condemns concession to impulse and holds up to admiration the patterns tested in tradition he little suspects how much he is himself affected by unavowed impulses timidity which makes him cling to authority conceit which moves him to be himself the authority 
who speaks in the name of authority, and possessive impulse, which fears to risk acquisition in new adventures. Love of certainty is a demand for guarantees in advance of action. Ignoring the fact that truth can be bought only by the adventure of experiment, dogmatism turns truth into an insurance company, fixed ends upon one side and fixed principles, that is the authoritative rules, on the other, are props for a feeling of safety, the refuge of the timid. The means by which the bold prey upon the timid. End of part three, section six, the nature of aims.